Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, there's a national effort underway to staff polling locations and election offices with folks who will challenge the results of upcoming elections. You'll hear about an analysis into the right-wing nonprofit behind it. Also, a recently settled lawsuit now means Georgia's Medicaid program must now cover gender-affirming surgeries. We'll review the latest of the case for tra- we'll review what the impacts of the case for transgender Georgians and their health care, what all this means. Those conversations coming up. But first, this, as you're also heard on NPR, COVID-19 cases are continuing an upward surge. That includes right here in Georgia. And that is also the number of people hospitalized for the virus. As Jess Mador reports, that's as schools are set to start in-person learning soon. Since last week, the state reports just under 31,000 new confirmed cases of COVID-19. That's an increase of more than 3,000 cases and almost 1,500 people hospitalized. And numbers from the Atlanta-based Centers for Disease Control and Prevention show much of the state again with high levels of COVID spread. The highly transmissible BA5 subvariant is now the dominant strain of the virus. Health officials continue to push vaccines, boosters, and mask wearing in crowded indoor spaces. Jess Mador, WABE News. In other news, Governor Brian Kemp has a message for his Democratic opponent, Stacey Abrams, regarding her plans for more affordable housing throughout Georgia. Now, through a spokesperson, Kemp says Abrams has Democrats to blame for making the cost of living more expensive. Abrams rolled out a plan Wednesday that says she would make housing more available and more affordable if she becomes Georgia's next governor. Abrams criticized Kemp for Georgia's sluggish use of almost a billion dollars in federal rental assistance. Governor Kemp has yet to unveil any of his proposals for a second term. And speaking of the gubernatorial race, Governor Kemp leads Abrams in a new AJC poll of likely voters with a 48 to 43 percent margin. Incumbent Democrat Senator Raphael Warnock is slightly ahead of Republican Herschel Walker in a race that could decide control of the Senate. Now, Warnock polls ahead of Walker with a 46 percent to 43. Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger polls with a 14 point lead over Democrat B. Wynn. A majority of Georgia voters, about 55 percent, oppose the state's new restrictive abortion law that took effect last week. And about 42 percent of those responding to the polls said they're more likely to vote for a candidate who supports abortion rights. It appears to be a done deal and now a bipartisan bill in that invests more than $50 billion in domestic production of semiconductor chips will probably head to President Joe Biden's desk. The House voted on the Chips and Science Act today. Georgia Senator Raphael Warnack sits on the conference committee, which was tasked with working out differences between legislative pre- previously passed by both the House and the Senate. Now, Warnock says the bill means the U.S. can lessen its reliance on computer chips produced overseas. In addition to that, we're talking about investments in these regional tech hubs that I would like to see all across our state uh, and investments in our colleges and universities uh, that have not necessarily gotten their fair share of federal research and development dollars. Georgia Congressman Hank Johnson and other Democrats are pushing a bill that they say would protect rappers and other artists from being criminalized based on their lyrics. And we'll hear more from Lily Oppenheimer. The Restoring Artistic Protection Act, or RAP Act, is the first bill of its kind at the federal level. 
In civil or criminal court proceedings, the act would limit how prosecutors can use an artist's creative expressions against them. Congressman Hank Johnson introduced the bill this week. He called it a freedom of speech and expression issue and cites that since 2020, prosecutors have brought up artists' lyrics in 500 criminal cases nationwide. The First Amendment guarantees the right to freedom of expression, but sponsors of the RAP Act say that freedom is stifled when safeguards are not in place. Other supporting groups of the bill include the Grammys, several music labels, and the Screen Actors Guild. Lily Oppenheimer, WABE News. And get ready as Atlanta students and teachers prepare to head back to class in the next few weeks. While that is going to take place, well, many districts are still dealing with a shortage of substitute teachers. Martha Dalton reports some systems are trying new tactics to fill those positions. The Fayette County Public Schools hired 120 substitutes last year, but Human Resources Director Aaron Robertson said it wasn't enough. I happened to hear someone saying that their spouse was a bus driver and would be willing to help between their routes. So I started thinking about that and I wondered if there were other bus drivers who might be willing to help fill in classrooms as well. Appearing in a district video, Robertson said the bus drivers weren't able to stay the entire day in between routes, but they were able to fill in for teachers for a few hours. Fayette's program will continue this year, and other districts have taken notice. Clayton County is considering a similar model. Interim Chief Human Resources Officer Alicia Albritton said recently, the district is coming up with a few job bundling options for employees. So essentially, they'll be able to combine more than one opportunity so that they can assist us with making sure that all of our service lines are covered. Other Atlanta districts are upping pay to attract subs. Cobb County went from $89 a day to 189. Nicola Suarez is the president of Kelly Education, a staffing service that provides subs for districts, including some in Metro Atlanta. We've seen, you know, districts that have gotten very creative with sign-on bonuses to different kinds of things like surge pay on those really difficult to fill days, you know, whether it's a Friday or the day after Super Bowl or something like that. Suarez says the main reason subs are in such high demand is because so many teachers are leaving. About 30 percent of the employees that were deployed every single day into classrooms are actually being utilized for long-term assignments. Suarez says sometimes that means subbing for a whole year. Many districts are trying to make substitute teaching part of the solution to the teacher shortage by urging people in other professions to sub to see if teaching could be a second career. State officials also passed a law this year making it easier for retired teachers to return to the classroom as subs or full-time teachers. Martha Dalton, WABE News. And a programming note tomorrow on Closer Look, APS Superintendent Dr. Lisa, Dr. Lisa Herring will be a guest. And finally, training camp is underway for the Atlanta Falcons. Lots of new faces, including Marcus Mariota at quarterback. He says it's great to be in training camp after some time off. For me, I really look at these five weeks as an opportunity just to get ready physically and mentally. Um, so training, doing things, um, getting ready to go. So. All in all, it was a great time for me to get away, uh, and I feel great. I'm looking forward to this opportunity. Falcons head coach Arthur Smith says this is the time for players to get acclimated with themselves as well as the plays. It's just a different team. I mean, things came up last year, something in, your, in our control, something that was out of our control. But that's, I mean, that happens all around the league. The guys, tire, injuries, whatever it is, um, we'll, we'll deal with any obstacles in the way we won't make excuses. But it, it's a completely different team. I do feel like there's Better competition, probably more depth. Well, the Falcons' first preseason game is just a couple of weeks away, August 12th. They play the Lions up in Detroit. Their regular season kicks off Sunday, September 11th, and you guessed it, the Saints will be marching in to Atlanta's Mercedes-Benz Stadium. That should be a sellout. Closer Look returns in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U.
And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Here's a quote. The effort is an extraordinary investment in sustaining and bolstering the false narrative of widespread voter fraud, quote, close quote. That is from a summary of an analysis from the Brennan Center in New York. And the headline reads, 2020 election deniers organized to challenge votes in 2022. Now, according to this analysis, this is a national effort underway. And part of the their efforts include staffing polling locations and election offices with people who will challenge the results of, of, of upcoming elections. And there's a lot more to this. Joining me now is Michaela Pantahartum. She serves as counsel for the Brennan Center's Democracy Program. Michaela, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. There is so much to get to, but first, let's start with the organization that's at the center of all of this. It's a conservative partnership institute. This is a relatively new group founded just, what, five years ago? Uh, That's correct. Yes, this effort is led by the Conservative Partnership Institute, which is a right-wing nonprofit that is partly funded by Trump's leadership pack. It's been somewhat of a destination for former Trump aides and other figures linked to January 6th. In fact, I think Mark Meadows is also one of the co-founders as well. Uh, He is a member of the Institute. Uh, He's a senior partner at the Mm -hmm. Institute and served as a keynote speaker at one of the uh, network summits. You go through their website and this is right on one of the front pages says, look, CPI is the home for conservative leaders in Washington who are serious about standing up for America's founding principles and serious about winning. So they are very clear about who they want to support and they want folks to win. When did you all start, I guess, analyzing them or starting to look at some of their motives or actions they wanted to do here? Uh, We first started tracking this, I would say, a a few months ago. Um, You know, the Institute has essentially, as you mentioned, created this network of groups and individuals with the goal of recruiting poll watchers and workers creating teams of local citizens to challenge voter rolls, being quote unquote, ever present in local election offices and flooding election officials with document requests. Um, Cleta Mitchell, a Republican lawyer who has been the public face of the effort recently told Steve Bannon on his podcast that quote, we are arming the army of patriots, that's our goal. Um, so this is something that we will definitely continue to keep an eye on as as we approach the November midterms. Any idea in terms of just how many folks, I mean, when you hear about an organization that pledges or promises to train folks to possibly immediately, you know, have issues with, with election results. I mean, how big, how much, any idea how many folks they've they've mobilized to be a part of this? Uh, right. I, I, I can't really quantify it. I think that's sort of an unknown at the moment. Mm-hmm. But, you know, before the formation of the network, there were a number of existing fringe grassroots groups rooted in election denialism. And the Conservative Partnership Institute in engaging in this effort has essentially spun those existing groups into a larger and more coordinated network that includes establishment organizations like Heritage Action for America, Mm -hmm. the political affiliate of the Heritage Foundation, um, the Tea Party Patriots is also a part of the effort, and the Republican National Committee, which is conducting its own unprecedented recruitment drive for poll watchers and workers, is also participated in some of the network summits. Let's talk about those network summits, because involved in those network summits, they are actually handing out published materials. How how many of these summits do you all contend have taken place or, or still will take place? Uh, there are a number of summits have already taken place in um, several states, including uh, Georgia and Arizona. Um, and there are summits um, that are still going to occur. And as, as you mentioned, um, at these summits, the Institute um, is handing out a guide that is, is shared there, um, which encourages activists to create local task forces to, quote, be ever present at election office and board meetings, to hear and see and learn things that are only learned by being there. The guide also act, advises activists, um, these members of, of task forces, 
to essentially fill out election infrastructure and become election officials and workers. But importantly, it neglects to explain critical differences between partisan poll watching activities and official election roles, where officials should serve all voters. Um, you know, activists are also instructed to look for and collect exhaustive information to identify what it calls, um, what the Institute calls bad addresses and to challenge voter eligibility, but doesn't go into the mistakes that other organized efforts to challenge voters had previously made, like failing to account for how election officials document addresses for student voters, military voters, and homeless voters. There's an actual guide that this organization has published. One of our listeners be very clear on what you're saying. There's a guide that's been that's published that they are handing out or that they're providing to these folks, which almost a which is seemingly a how-to in terms of what they want folks to do. I mean, this is an actual guide. I'm I'm looking at this, right? It's a 20-page guide that they've actually been published and produ- produced and published. That's that's right. And, the, you know, one thing is the guide also encourages state level activists to identify whether officials in attorney general offices are friend or foe. So the concern here is really that the instruction, which is sometimes combative, often vague, when paired with the false belief in widespread fraud, could lead to unlawful mass voter challenges, election security breaches, voter intimidation and other kinds of lawbreaking in November. Michaela, this stood out to me, and I want to go over this because there's a section here under key tips on contacts with and conduct at election offices. One, always go to an election office in, in a pair, so there's always a witness to what transpires. Never lose your temper or raise your voice. Smile and remind whomever, whoever wants you out of there that you're just gathering information, trying to help make the system, I guess, work and document any encounter that is intended to make you uncomfortable being at the election offices. Yes, I I think, you know, and that that's sort of paired with sort of other statements like encouraging um, people to identify whether election officials are are friends or foes. Um, The troubling message, I think, that activists may be taking away from all this is that the objective is to gum up the works of Mm -hmm. the ordinary business of election administration and to treat hardworking and diligent election officials as hostile partisans. And that is um, that is very concerning. To your knowledge, is anyone from whether it's the Department of Justice or or, and, and perhaps there's no criminal activity yet? You don't know that. But do you know is anyone from in law enforcement or agencies, or are they aware of this? I, I'm, I'm assuming they read your, your analysis here. I'm not aware of that, no. How concerning is, is this? For, I mean, it, I, I think I know the answers, but how concerning is this for your organization? It is very concerning. And um, to mention Georgia specifically, um, in Georgia, new law makes this particularly Concerning Georgia's new voting law allows Georgian citizens to file unlimited numbers Mm -hmm. of challenges to voters' eligibility. So the prospect of improper mass voter challenges is certainly a possibility in Georgia. Um, And an important consequence of efforts like this is also just chaos itself. Um, That is part of the equation. If groups like this are able to sow enough doubt and confusion after an election defeat, they can potentially convince the legislature to overturn the electorate's clearly articulated will. And that is something that is very, very concerning. Do you know, throughout your analysis here, if you all were able to identify if there, you mentioned Georgia, were there some specific states that you feel that this organization definitely wants to target people for? Um, Well, one example of how this has gone in practice is the Virginia gubernatorial race last year, in which Republican Glenn Youngkin defeated Democrat Terry McAuliffe. Um, The New York Times has reported that in coordination with a Virginia nonprofit and coalition, the network trained uh, 4,500 poll watchers and election workers and organized 18 local task forces ahead of the election. Um, election workers reported that Republican watchers at some poll sites were disruptive on election day. 
Um, the Times also reported that Fairfax County's registrar at the time, Scott Kunopasek, said that his office had fielded dozens of information requests and informal interrogations that drained election officials of time, and that these requests and interrogations had an accusatory tone. Mm -hmm. So that function of draining election officials of time and resources is deeply troubling, especially given the fact that many election offices are under-resourced to begin with and are charged with administering safe and secure elections. You all say, in fact, in this analysis, that states, quote, should enact laws and institute practices to prevent election system breaches, taking quick action to cure breaches when they occur. You all say law enforcement should take serious threats to any election workers as well and respond appropriately. And when I asked you a while ago about in terms of if you knew that law enforcement was aware of this, but listen, we know how contentious the 2016 president election was. We know or the 2020 we know what came out of that. In fact, we're still dealing with that. What do you, What is your hope then that folks, that the proper folks are are, are having a watchful eye on all, on all of this? Yes. Um, so, you know, we think states should enact laws and implement practices to prevent election system breaches and secure elections. That includes preventing unauthorized third parties from gaining access to critical elections and voting equipment. States should also take prompt action to remedy breaches when they do occur, and several have um, have occurred since the 2020 presidential election. Mm-hmm. Um, law enforcement officials should take threats to election workers seriously and respond appropriately. A new initiative from current and former election and law enforcement officials called the Committee for Safe and Secure Elections is helping to curb threats against election workers. Um, And election officials, civic groups, social media companies, and the media can also help by preventing and preempting misinformation um, through sharing accurate and contextualized information about elections. Election officials in particular can plan well-timed voter education campaigns, publish rumor control pages, and Mm -hmm. maintain a network of trusted messengers, um, including those in the media, to amplify accurate election information. You all at the Brennan Center have been, well, you're always busy. I've had many of you on this program before. Uh, When you, whether it's this report or some of the other issues that you all are are following in terms of some of the state's voter laws, and of course we've had you on here and we've talked about Georgia, uh, heading into 2022 into those midterm elections here, uh, just through your lens, Michaela, how important is it to make sure that everyone who 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 wants to vote, their vote will count, and also that it won't be suppressed. It is critically, critically important. Um, I think one thing to be cautious about um, the kind of effort that, that we're talking about on on this segment is that occasionally groups in in these kind of networks will say things that sound a lot like um, protective rhetoric, such as promoting messages about the importance of protecting vulnerable voters, but Mm -hmm. when you pair that with the belief in widespread voter fraud, that message can become a lot more sinister and could potentially lead to voter interference and other disturbing consequences. Um, You know, one group that has uh, presented at the summit, the American Constitutional Rights Union, uh, hosts misinformation on its website about Mm -hmm. the legality of assistance to elderly voters and also claims on its website to have made more than a thousand phone calls and sent more than three thousand mm-hmm. letters to nursing homes and senior living facilities in the 2020 election. Um, another group in Pennsylvania that has been inspired by the institute's work has put out its own planning document that recommends that activists find out the political affiliation of every nursing home administrator in the state. Um, so, you know, putting out corrective, um, accurate information and and um, protecting voters that are potentially targeted by these groups is um, extremely, extremely important. And also, just before, as we wrap up, I want election officials, too, who have y'all said have been under attack. And this goes back to 2020. If folks don't understand what some of these folks have been put through, I know there was some who testified uh, in, in Congress at, at some hearings, election, work, election officials who were followed, election officials who were harassed, just some horrific accounts here since 2020. 
Absolutely. Many career election officials are resigning in the wake of January 6th and the spread of the big lie of a stolen election. The Brennan Center recently put out a poll conducted by the Benenson Strategy Group. Um, the poll found that nearly one in three local election officials know an election worker who left their job in parts mm. in part because of threats, intimidation, or fears for their safety. And more than half of election officials surveyed were concerned that some incoming colleagues might believe the lie that wide, widespread fraud occurred in 2020. So obviously, all of these problems are compounding. The loss of election officials is creating more holes to fill. It's making it harder for election offices to combat election misinformation. And it's also potentially leaving room for an influx of election deniers in those same offices. Mm. Michaela, what else will you all be working on between now and Election Day in November? Um, a number of things uh, combating these election security threats in the lead up to the election and protecting voting rights more generally. Michaela mm-hmm. Pandaharton, who serves as counsel for the Brennan Center's Democracy Program. Michaela, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for this information. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. It took a lawsuit filed by the ACLU and then a settlement. Now Georgia Medicaid will cover gender-affirming surgeries. And there's so much in terms of a backstory here and what this now means for so many Georgians. Let's welcome Carl Charles, senior attorney in the Southern Regional Office of Lambda, Lambda Legal, located here in Atlanta, Georgia. Carl, welcome. Thank you so much, Rose. Uh, it's it's uh, such an honor to be here with you today. I appreciate that. Let's begin here because Georgia Medicaid had barred insurance coverage for gender affirming surgeries. This goes back to 1993. Can you, I believe, can you give our listeners a little bit of backstory here? Because I was surprised that that it went back that far. But then I thought, well, I'm not surprised that perhaps that this was a, a procedure that had been barred by many insurance companies, including. Uh, and even if you talk about Medicaid, so can you give our listeners a little backstory here? Sure. So um, the the norm really for most states uh, from you know approximately the late seventies through the early nineties, as you note, uh, was to include um, a variety of exclusions in their Medicaid coverage. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, state plans, and and that reflected lots of things, right? So I, I don't want to say it was just about uh, healthcare coverage for transgender people. It was about all kinds of things, right? So-called pre-existing conditions for cisgender people, uh, various chronic illnesses that were expensive to treat. So states were unfortunately looking at their Medicaid program as not particularly important and not something that they needed to necessarily allocate a lot of state funds for. So over the years, that started to change, right? Um, Going into the late 90s, the early 2000s, and of course, uh, former President Obama's work on the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act heralded a new era for so many people in this country in terms of health care access. And during that period, advocates in many states started to lobby their state governments to shift their thinking when it comes to healthcare for transgender people. Um, you know, there were, uh, at that point, decades of studies, uh, rep- you know, demonstrating the, the safety, uh, the benefit, frankly, to uh, all trans people who needed this care for whom it was medically necessary, and also the cost savings in the long run, right? And this is a universal principle your listeners will likely be aware of is, mm-hmm. you know, if you engage in, you know, preventative medicine, right? Uh, you you help people take care of themselves and you, you know, if you're looking at it from a dollars and cents perspective, you do end up saving the state a great deal of money because you're not treating worsened conditions down mm-hmm. the road. Um, and that was certainly uh, a, a large part of why um, I think many state governments were convinced by the arguments made by advocates. Now, I, I don't wanna say that's fully the case because as we see here from the ACLU's lawsuit, we as advocates have continued to, legal advocates have continued to 
have to sometimes resort to litigation mm-hmm. uh, to to help states understand that point. Let's talk about that. I want you to inform our listeners who brought the lawsuit. Yeah, so this lawsuit was brought by uh, the ACLU of Georgia, along with the ACLU LGBT and HIV project, a uh, former colleague of mine, Taylor Brown, who's, who's now in New York City with the project, and uh, also significantly aided by pro bono legal services from the law firm of King and Spalding, which is a uh, a really well-respected law firm here in Georgia. And we should note for our listeners as well, the ACLU of Georgia is a frequent underwriter here on WABE. So, Carl, this lawsuit was was brought and it was uh, against the Department of Community Health, correct? Because they were the ones denying the coverage for the gender-affirming surgeries for these two women, correct? That's right. And, and typically, uh, you know, we see in many states that the Medicaid programs are run by some kind of state-based Bureau of Health, Health and Human Services. Uh, that's typically the agency responsible for underwriting those plans, deciding what is covered and what's not. And also I think it's important, too, for listeners to know, and you can talk more about this, Carl, because the surgeries were, had been recommended, from what I understand, by their physicians and also mental health providers. That's correct. And, and I think that's a really important point, Rose, to uh, help listeners understand that um, what, what these plaintiffs and, and plaintiffs that Lambda Legal has and similar challenges in different states um, are asking for is, is, frankly, the opportunity to be evaluated as to whether or not this is the appropriate medical care for them, right? So um, unfortunately, an often used talking point of our opponents is that this will sort of open the floodgates. That is not true, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, these Medicaid recipients, just like all Medicaid recipients, have to be seen by the relevant medical professionals. This care has to be deemed uh, appropriate for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, those professionals have to take into consideration, you know, co-indicated medical conditions, the patient's unique situation. So this is really... Uh, uh, an effort to just have trans people be able to be evaluated, right? Along with, you know, and and to sort of enjoy that um, right that non-transgender people who are Medicaid recipients receive, right? Which is the ability to go to a doctor, if appropriate, receive a diagnosis, if appropriate, receive this care. Carl, any idea how many states in the nation, their Medicaid programs also will cover gender-affirming surgeries? Well, I'm happy to share with you and with your listeners that it is now uh, a majority of states. Um, and that is thanks, as I mentioned earlier, to many advocates at the state level who, who lobbied uh, their, their relevant health uh, agencies. And it's also due in part to the work of Lambda Legal and the ACLU and other legal advocacy groups who have, uh, in some cases, had to bring affirmative litigation. So we are actually... Uh, fortunately, we're in the position where um, there are less than 10 states that exclude this care um, on, you know, sort of in the actual text of their policies and plans. And Carl, as you know, with so many issues, particularly when it relates to health and wellness, when it comes to breaking this down into particular ethnic groups or even subpopulations here, we often hear that this was extremely important for Black, transgender, and, and, and those probably maybe living in rural communities or, or low-income or those who are socioeconomic issues, this is also a huge win as well. It's, it's, um, it's particularly important uh, to, to make that um, distinction as you did, Rose, and I'm so glad you brought it up. Um, you know, transgender people, uh, you know, from the largest survey of this community taken in 2015, uh, live at a uh, live in poverty at a rate nearly three times that of cisgender people. And when I use the term cisgender, I mean people who are not transgender. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, we also know that transgender people are chronically unemployed due in large part to being pushed out of families of origin, out of schools, having limited opportunities for education. Um, And so many transgender people and uh, you know, who live at the intersection of a number of identities, right? Folks of color, people living with disabilities, access to health care coverage through state Medicaid plans is just so crucial 
for all kinds of health care that they need, but especially for gender affirming care. And Carl, I have a question from a listener here who wants to know, does this mean that an indiv- individual must have this recommended by their physician or a mental health uh, person, provider? Yeah, so t- uh, yes. So typically what, um, and, and just I'll say for the listener, this generally applies whether a person is a Medicaid recipient or not. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the standards of care for the treatment of gender dysphoria Uh, Someone can't just walk into a doctor's office and say, here's what I need. Mm -hmm. They have to, um, you know, like I said earlier, they have to be, they have to meet with a provider. They have to talk through the treatment options. They have to meet with mental health care providers. There have to be uh, letters that that person obtains that support that surgical intervention. So I, I, you know, it's, it's important that listeners understand the way that our opponents are framing access to healthcare, which is life-saving and medically necessary, is not accurate, right? Um, There's unfortunately some misinformation happening about that, so I'm happy to set the record straight here. Uh, You misinformation, and what other types of misinformation as well, Carl? Um, You know, I think it's uh, also, um, you know, we're hearing a lot about um, access to gender affirming care uh, for transgender youth being framed in really harmful ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, I think it's also important to point out that transgender young people under age 18 are not eligible for surgical interventions, contrary to what our opponents uh, like, uh, you know, have been saying in the media as of late. So, you know, what we're talking about here is uh, people who are in need of medically necessary care who have been approved for it, um, and who, under the, the laws of the Constitution, under the Equal Protection Clause, have a right to access that care at the same as other people, right? That's what we're saying is that, but for these people being transgender, mm-hmm. they would have access to this care, right? So, And interesting as we wrap up, because this lawsuit settled just a few months ago, but settled following what was considered, I guess, a court-facilitated mediation in, in, from the Northern District of Georgia, was that surprising to you that it, it came out in settlement and didn't actually make it into you know litigation in terms of a court? Um, it's a great question, Rose. And I, you know, having not been a part of the legal team as as we discussed before, this was a great case that the ACLU and King and Spalding brought. I will say, as an outsider and a and a Atlanta, Georgia resident, I was surprised yeah. uh, to see that the case took this posture. And I say that because. As some of your listeners may know, Lambda Legal is actively litigating a challenge in West Virginia about a Medicaid exclusion. And we have, the state has not settled with us there. Uh, As many folks may know, Florida uh, is entertaining changing this policy and there will likely be a legal response there. So we were surprised to see this be the posture, but happy and and really uh, congratulations to the ACLU and to King and Spalding on this really huge victory. Carl Charles is a senior attorney in the Southern Regional Office of Lambda Legal, located here in Atlanta, Georgia. Counselor, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. From WABE in Atlanta, Georgia, Closer Look continues. I'm Rose Scott. Okay, y'all get ready. I'm going to set the setting for you. Here's the place. It's the Bronx up in New York. Everybody got that? Four black women who are close friends maneuvering through life and all that it brings. Their stories are told around hair routine and the sisterhood bond that they share. It's a new graphic novel titled Wash Day Diaries. It's a joint venture between award-winning comics writer, editor, and publisher Jamelia Rouser and cartoonist Robin Smith. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. I'm joined now by one half of the team. Jamila, welcome. Thank you, Rose. So excited to be here. I want to begin by saying thank you. This is really, really cool. <laughs> this is really... And, and from And listen, from that very first page that reads, quote... To the black girls around the world, you are seen, you are beautiful. Take our listeners yes, through how yes. all this came about. This is awesome. Thank you so much. Um, yes, this uh, actually st- spawned from my first um, comic book, which was uh, Wash Day, which was a, the first chapter or the first story in Wash 
wash day diaries and i've always loved comics and the thing that i really felt was missing was uh, comics featuring black women going through their everyday life you know we do get the superhero stuff mm -hmm. and we'll even get slice of life things from uh you know not marginalized folks um but i just wanted to see something that represented my friends and me um and uh you know and showing like uh highlighting our hair and and mm -hmm. that was one of the things that i really wanted to show is like the the time and care we put into um, our hair which is something that society deems unprofessional at times ugly at times um and despite all of that and in spite of all of that you know we put a lot of care and i wanted to show black women that you know there is a place for them in comics that i see them um, and just making space for us in the comic book world um, and honoring them and and our routines and even though when i have my wash day i dread it <laughs> who <are> you telling <laughs> it is, it's not as beautiful as it looks in the comic but uh you know we do have two pages of detangling so i try to keep it as, as authentic as possible listen i have <laughs> i have locks all the way down my back i'm there i i get it let's take our listeners <laughs> through these four friends um i imagine that there's a little bit is there a little bit of you in, in all of these sisters or there is it's interesting uh, there's a little bit of every i'm in, i'm in a little bit of everybody and my friends are kind of a little bit in everybody as well um and i really wanted to kind of have uh, sisterhood and friendship is huge uh, themes for me and my work and i really wanted to show not just you know the beauty of our hair care routines but the beauty of friendship and black sisterhood and how we um, can depends on each other and that beautiful interdependence and uh, the different dynamics that our friends um, can have and you know how much we love each other and even through our ups and downs uh, we may not always get it right but we always do care and um, and so it was really fun to be able to put that combine that with the hair journey and um, the artist Robin Smith yeah through this journey of us creating, you know, the very first comic, Wash Day, the the, the 27 page comic back in 2018, we became best friends. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a ton of friendship and love um, that you can really feel in this comic because we ourselves are really good friends. And then um, just the close bond that I have with my other friends, I just wanted readers to feel that, feel like, you know, oh, I can relate to this in my group chats and, and my best friends and going to brunch and things like that. So um, we don't we don't get to see a lot of that. We do get to see a lot of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, black trauma and, mm -hmm. and things like that, I think is more focused. Um, those kind of stories are more focused on. And I wanted to um, have something lighter um, and that is still really important. I want to focus on a Robin. Unfortunately, she couldn't join us today. But when you look at when you first saw what she came up with for oh Kim, Nisha, Cookie, and Devine, mm -hmm. did you say, okay, she nailed it? Because they all yeah. got different, different types of hair texture, different mm -hmm. facial features, you know, their backgrounds. How, how spot on did Robin do with these? Robin was amazing. I didn't have, um, I didn't give her a lot of um, very specific things about how I wanted the characters' faces to look. I just wanted to have a diverse range of skin tones, hair types, and body types. And so I think she did a really wonderful job in, in creating like hair that actually looks real, you know, as a black woman who reads comics. Unfortunately, I've seen a lot of black hair that is just not realistic. It's like, that's not our hair, how our hair lays. That's not how cornrows look. Um, so she, you know, is a wonderful artist. And um, I just, it just blew my, it blows my mind every time I would get a new page from her. It was just such a wonderful feeling. And why the Bronx? The Bronx is my quote unquote hometown. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that's where I spent a lot of my 20s and, and that's where I spent most of my time with my very close friend group. Uh, I went to school in New York City. My my um, I'm a military brat, so I moved all mm -hmm. over the place. Uh, but my parents are from the Bronx. My family's from the Bronx. And so that is my like 
that's what I rep, although I am in hot Miami right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, Brooklyn gets a lot of shine. Uh, but, you know, I think thanks to like Cardi B and stuff, the Bronx mm -hmm. gets more um, is getting more shine. And so the city is a part of is kind of a character in itself as well. And I wanted to show, you know, the specific stuff that you can get in the Bronx or the experiences you can get going to the bodega and mm -hmm. the different trains, making sure they were very accurate, you know, like the train stations looked exactly like that train station because mm -hmm. um, I knew New Yorkers would be able to tell like that's not how the <laughs> Castle Hill train looks because <laughs> they will let you know oh they will they definitely will <laughs> and in the world of social media they'll put you like the sheep down look nothing like the Penn Station they or will whatever. yes <laughs> they will tag me and let me know <laughs> let me ask you this because your background mm -hmm. you mentioned and you talked about this in terms of graphic novels and comics and not seeing a lot that focuses on just black women, our everyday mm -hmm. experiences. This some, I've been reading some reviews and there was a, a woman on YouTube that actually did a, she does a hair like routine type, you know, do it yourself. And she also gave a review of the book. Did you see that? I have not. Oh my gosh. That sounds amazing. I need to find that. <laughs> yeah, she's got your book. I'm like, okay, she's giving y'all a shout out. I love out. that. How important is, a, is a, a graphic novel like this right now? I think for me, it, it hits on so many different levels of how, why it's important. Um, I think it shows that all kinds of black stories are important, not just the ones that are about, you know, trauma or, um, you know, the hardships that we go through they are important as well mm -hmm. but we can also celebrate the love that's in our lives and friendships and things that seem mundane you know like washing our hair is actually a really big deal mm -hmm. and i think show, showing that and highlighting that um is important and it shows people a different um way to uh see black stories and, and understand black stories um and also that it's adult uh, black women. We mm -hmm. do get a lot of comics that are for um, kids, you know, middle grade, young adult. And these are, this is a little bit more why a little bit older than YA. You know, these are adult women doing adult women things. And we don't get a lot of that in comics in general, period, let alone black women. Absolutely. And in fact, so. <laughs> in fact, you touch upon it when you, when I think, I think it's Devine when she's trying to get her hair cornrowed. Mm -hmm. And she she's like, look, I can't go to work with my hair natural, not yep. after what happened last time. And she says, I can't deal with this <clears throat> stuff right now. Yes. That's real. <laughs> that it's is real. real experiences I've had personally. A lot of a lot of the stuff that happens um, is is based off of personal experience, not a straight up auto bio. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, I wanted there to be cursing and mature topics. And there's some, you know, mild nudity because a girl's in the shower washing her hair. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are things like that that we don't get in comics. And I want, um, as a 35 year old who loves comics, um, I really want Wash Day Diaries to be, uh, me and Robin, our goal is like, if this is the first comic a black woman reads like this, that will make our day, you know, and show them that there are comics out there for them and inspire them to go looking. Um, and, and because when you walk into, you know, a comic book shop or a Barnes and Nobles, mm -hmm. you may not see stuff that features characters that look like you. Mm -hmm. And if they do, they're, you know, background characters or mm -hmm. they're written by, you know, straight white men and it just doesn't feel authentic. And so, I hope it inspires um, black women out there to uh, see that there are comics that can be about them and to maybe write their own and create their own. Um, and that's, I, and yeah. No, <laughs> I, 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 and I also see, I can see Wash Day Diaries and animation too. Listen, exactly. <laughs> I have the same idea. <laughs> I would love for it to be animation uh, because that is definitely an area where. I don't wear black women's stories in adult animation. I don't see that, you know? Um, and so that would be a dream because I love animation as well. And so if, if anybody's listening and interested, they can hit us up. <laughs> you, you're, you're open for discussions and negotiations. Oh, what you're open. saying? What's the, <laughs> Jamila, what's the, what's the feedback been like so far about wash day diaries? 
It's been so amazing. Um, you know, we this is me and Robin's pandemic baby. You know, we created it during the pandemic. It was really difficult. Um, and starting to get the reviews, um, especially from a lot of women who've never read comics before and how they were like, oh my gosh, like, I didn't know this is what comics could be like and mm -hmm. how relatable it was and, and how they were laughing out loud or, you know, even crying because it really takes you through all these different emotions. Mm -hmm. um, it was very affirming, you know, it, it felt very affirming that I am on the right path. That even though, you know, me and Robin don't see a lot of the stories that we want to see in comics um you know that that they are just because they're not there doesn't mean people don't want them and i think that that's the biggest thing that the reviews have told me is that people are thirsty for this kind these kinds of stories and if not an animation i could and i know we've had this storyline before in terms of television Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know which but, has inspired a lot of you know yes. girlfriends insecure absolutely living single know, all living of single, that yeah. yes exactly <laughs> what's next for you oh i um well i have my publishing company black jose press and so um we publish comics that are focused on um black and brown creators um women and non-binary folks so i'm working on editing some comics that are coming out in a magazine um and i do have some comics that will be in that magazine um i do me and robin have worked on a couple of projects together and so there is another one we hope to work on in the future um so we we're we're a duo that you'll definitely see again. <laughs> what are some tips you want to give to someone who says, you know what, maybe now that I've been listening to Rose talk to Jamila, maybe I'll take a stab at writing. Because, you know, writing for oh, comics yeah. and, and, you know, other types of genre within literary, they're all different. What oh, yes. What's that? What's that? A couple golden nuggets you want folks to know. I've always yeah, been told just write, you know. <laughs> well, you know, with comics, it's it's very different. Um, and so I was self-taught as far as comics writing, like I used to write and blog a lot before, but um, for writing for comics, um, you're writing for the artist. And so it is very different and a specific skill. And there are tons of great resources on how to write comic scripts um, there. So I would definitely, you know, go to your library or go to the bookstore and check out books about writing comic scripts so you can see, you know, the kind of information that needs to be in the different panels um, because it is definitely not the same as writing a novel. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> definitely not the same. And so, and I would also suggest starting small, you know, Wash Day, the first um, story in Wash Day Diaries is 27 pages. Mm -hmm. And of course, I had all these ideas of making it bigger or doing more stories, but I'm like, chill, let's start small. <laughs> it's, it's you know, a lot easier to do and um, it can show that you can get something done. So I would definitely say, look up resources about writing comic scripts. You can see free examples of them online as well. Um, and um, if possible, see if you can hire an editor. Um, gotcha. And that can also help. Yeah. All right. It's a graphic novel titled Wash Day Diaries by Jamila Rouser and Robin Smith. I've been in conversation with Jamila. Best of luck and continued success. I love this copy. It's all mine. Usually I give them away. <laughs> I'm not giving this one away. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Thank bro. you for taking the time. I appreciate it. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder, you can catch all the programs you missed at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org slash election 2024.